information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Today, we're going to do spinal cord injuries, a little bit of uh, strumming the cord, if you will. So today, I'm joined by, again, Dr. Joseph Doherty, uh, who's board certified in critical care and emergency medicine. Thanks for coming, Joe. Glad to be here, Will. And uh, first time on the podcast, Dr. Dan Duran, who's a senior neurosurgery resident now here at UMC, a uh, good friend of ours here at AirCare. We see him all the time in the ER. I appreciate um, y'all for having me. So... Let's get right to it. Spinal cord injuries. So just their definition straight off up to date. Uh, most spinal cord injuries are produced in association with injury produces pathologic flexion, rotation, extension, and or compression of the vertebral column. These can include any or more of the following. Fracture to one or more of the bony elements, dislocation of one or more joints, tearing of the ligaments or ligament, uh, disruption and or herniation of the intravertebral disc. Everybody cool with that? Yeah. Yes. And then spinal shock and neurogenic shock. I put on here just so we can everybody talk about it real fast. Spinal shock, descending impulses from the cord transection or cord compression, uh, loss distal to the injury, and then neurogenic shock, uh, loss of anatomic function at the level usually associated with above T6, warm dry skin, flush blood level injury. So that's an important determination to make because I think these terms are thrown around uh, as equals, especially when we're you know talking to different specialties or among different team members, uh, and they're really not. So spinal shock is more of a global term that applies to injuries that affect the spinal cord really at any level, and uh, the presumed mechanism of why this causes things like hypotension is mostly anchored on vasodilation. The term neurogenic shock is usually reserved for loss of autonomic input from the sympathetic system. And this usually happens in injuries that are sort of mid-thoracic or higher. The standard definition usually says above T6. And this one is sort of vasoplegic in its mechanism to cause hypotension. Um, so they're a little bit different. But you're right. A lot of people use them interchangeably. I remember in paramedic school, I got confused it's not one day, just trying to differentiate the two of them. Um, but commonly, you know, we get the transfer calls or whatever. You go, oh, they got a patient in spinal shock, and it's definitely neurogenic. Yeah. Like, neurogenic is what we, I, as a critical care physician, would more think of as a true shock state. Like Correct. Like a perfusion state. I agree. Yeah. Also, I need to add this right now. It's very um, interesting for me to be in the same room with y'all with it not being a total catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> if it's the three of us in a single room, there's something really bad happening or about to happen. Usually, that, uh, that, usually that, that tends to be the case in yeah. some of those trauma days. Yeah, it is kind of weird. I didn't even think about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Usually, it's 3 a.m. and something's going wrong, and yeah. there's lines everywhere and yes. tubes and things. And Well, there's lines everywhere here, too. But yeah, 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 different different, different kinds. Different, different kinds. Um, as far as assessing cord injuries in general, so this is something that I truly think is important, especially pre-hospital, but in general, a lot of people skip over this. They think, okay, well... Great, they have a samurai sword poking in their spine. That's pretty obvious. Usually there's a problem, right? But it's the subtle injury, the that they were in an ATV wreck or something, they just rolled, they don't think much about it. Those big assessment findings and those subtle assessment findings. Um, we've said a lot on different episodes, but pick a method to your madness. Have a standardized assessment. 
is there are there tricks or trades or different things that y'all use as far as your assessment guidelines? Uh, I think from the neurosurgical side of things, definitely. But the way I like to conceptualize this is I think the utility of a very fine assessment is greater when you're already in the hospital, right? Um, when you're transferring someone from the field, it would be very useful for us to know, for example, coarsely, what level of injury are we looking at? And that can be helpful for resuscitative efforts as well, right? We're going to get into some of the drugs that we can use for hypotension associated to injuries and how they work um, and how they might be preferable where, you know, an injury occurs in the cervical spine versus the thoracic spine. Um, but yeah, I think a, a course determination of level of injury is important. And there are a few tips and tricks um, up our sleeve. So a lot of the population that we see has, you know, had an elderly fall, for example. We see a lot of central cord syndrome type pictures. So abnormal sensory findings, obviously abnormal motor findings. I know that y'all do a motor and sensory assessment when you pick up a patient from the field, and that can be really helpful. Things like burning pain, allodynia, they're you know, telling you their hands feel like they're on fire, their shoulders feel like they're on fire, right? Um, someone that can't move arms and legs will tell you that this is a higher injury, right? So trying to determine the motor level is also important. Um, but those are the things that should be assessed pre-hospital. Now, when they get to the hospital, they will need a very detailed and formal neurological examination. Um, but those are sort of the two, two blocks where I kind of break it up in my mind, um, utility-wise. I think from an emergency medicine and pre-hospital standpoint, it's important to remember that a lot of these spinal cord injury patients are polytrauma patients. Absolutely. So um, when, I, when I teach ATLS, Advanced Trauma Life Support to the Physicians, I'm always emphasizing you know, airway, breathing, circulation first. The best thing you can do to protect the spinal cord is to keep the patient well perfused, keep the cord well perfused. You know, a lot of the time in these injuries, the damage is already done, but we can protect it from, same as in traumatic brain injury, protect it from secondary injury, prevent hypoxia, prevent hypotension. Critically important. And, you know, airway, breathing, circulation, once you get to that, D, disability um, is in our primary survey for ATLS, PHTLS. Um, and yes, that is a gross assessment of motor function. What's mm -hmm. their DCS? Can they move all extremities? Very, very important. Um, one of the tenets of management of an acute spinal cord injury is isolated from the polytrauma side of things, from the neurosurgical perspective, maintenance of good perfusion to that cord, right? And as Joe said, these injuries do not occur in isolation. So going through the ABC, doing proper resuscitation in the field, avoiding hypotension, if at all possible, you know, given, you know, the milieu of injury that the patient has is very, very important. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think it ticks off neurosurgeons that uh, A doesn't stand for a neurosurgeon, <laughs> but we need to be cognizant of that, right? There are things that come first in stabilizing a critically ill polytrauma patient. For example, a lot of these high spinal cord injuries, a lot of these high cervical spine injuries, patients are going to require immediate intubation. Absolutely. C5 and above are not going to be breathing well. Below that, very well may require about half of them will require um, intubation anything well. anything above that diaphragm you got a problem exactly. period yes or you can run into a problem really fast um, yes. and i think that's a critical thing to point out because a lot of these people will come in and won't have a protected airway um, those people need to be watched very carefully and or intubated as soon as you see that they're having trouble and that's something else i wanted to bring up is it's a trending tool so you get one of a lot of times we 
talk to our crews and our clinicians and they'll say, all right, well, all I'm going to do is trend them. So they take an extra two minutes either before you intubate them, ideally. Mm-hmm. But when you get to them and like, hey, I don't think they need intubation right now. Maybe I'll hold this off until I can get to someone like you or J- Joe. Either one say, hey, look, let's do the fine exam in a controlled environment and really get them down. Yeah. Sometimes we prolong intubation or, or uh, sedation or skewing that exam later on, but you still have to trend that exam all the way through and try to repeat it the best you possible can. But yeah, definitely. I think putting the concepts together of what we've discussed, um, going through your ABCs and securing the airway on top of, you know, having the D part of your primary assessment will inform you which of these people might actually get in trouble before you put a tube in them, right? So if you have findings that suggest a high cervical injury, you know, things above the dermatome of C6, for example, um, will be good telltale signs for the pre-hospital folks to really clue in on that patient and consider securing their airway if they get in trouble sooner rather than later. Oh, yeah, for sure. As far as the 4P, that's something that's drilled in your head in EMT school, paramedic school, nursing school, is the paralysis, paresthesia, pain, and position. Is that something that they really need to document again or make sure they relay to you? It would be helpful. All the information that we can get with regard to how an injury occurred, right? That'll tell us about mechanism. That'll tell us about, you know, potential energy involved. That'll clue us into looking for more granular things uh, in terms of mechanism of injury and how we're going to deal with it later. But yes, they are very helpful for us. It's one of those, I know there's some some trauma literature, some trauma surgeons will tell you that, hey, you know, I, I really don't care about looking at pictures of incidents or mechanism or understanding that. Sometimes these are the patients you want to take an extra second and figure out the mechanism or make sure you relay appropriately. I know that I've, hanging out in the ER, I've gone down and chased down AMR crews or PAP or whoever, be like, hey, can you guys tell us a little bit more about this so we can pass it along to the right people and make sure we look for those way down the blown imaging findings and like, hey, how did this happen? Absolutely agree. Um, I've had several instances in which I've been called to assess a patient that's been in a trauma situation with a suspected very high energy uh, mechanism injury. So, for example, they call you over and say, this patient has, you know, an atlanto-occipital dislocation. Their head is no longer connected to their cervical spine. And then you start asking, okay, how did this happen? I was like, no, they fell. They fell from bed. So these are things that you need to start putting together in, in your mind to be able to determine, okay, is this actually plausible or is this radiology finding that has been overcalled or things like that, you know? A lot of the time, the imaging findings really only make sense in the context of whatever mechanism absolutely you're agree. dealing with. For sure. Um, something else I wanted to bring up, selfishly, we see a lot of stuff with sports medicine and stingers and contusions and this, that, this, that and the other. There are abundance now of literature and abundance of assessments. The SEC, the NCAA, all have concussion protocols, this, that, and the other. They also have cord injuries, suspected cord injury protocols. Are there things that they need to, as sports medicine folks, need to make sure they assess or, like, don't want to skip out? A lot of them are like, oh, well, they don't feel right. There's a stinger. They're just hurting in this one spot. Again, is it is there something more specific for those contact, contact? I'm thinking football or baseball, somebody running the base, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's important to document that, to assess those and document those. Um Something like a stinger, a transient neurologic deficit can still be a cord injury. Um, you know, there's what we call the Asia, the American Spinal Injury Association, classification of uh, spinal cord injuries. And Asia E is a injury that has resolved, but it is still still represents an injury. 
Yeah, from from my side of things, I think you should err on the side of considering these you know spinal cord injuries until proven otherwise. Um, and that might be overly sensitive and maybe overtreat some of these folks. Uh, but I think when you're talking about, you know, motor function, sensory function, and how that plays into a person's ability to, you know, be an active member of the community. Well, I said life after sport, life correct. after football, all of those things. It might be a good idea to just, you know, sort of treat empirically as a spinal cord injury and then kind of figure out what actually happened. And many times we don't have a great answer. For these transient neurologic deficits that we see, especially in the pediatric population or in the teenage population, there's usually no good answer. Moving right down our little list here. So let's talk a little bit about the incomplete injuries, the ones that are, you know, we've complete, obviously, the entire cord's smoked. They literally cut in half or what have you. Central cord, um, anterior cord, those kinds of things, how common are they? for y'all to see well i mean I know we're a level one trauma center so I mean, we're gonna see a lot more than most people but very common i would say we see incomplete spinal cord injuries almost every day in our practice here that and that's kind of what i wanted you to say that because it it's people think oh this is something i just read in a book one time but they're very more common than you might think especially central cord is something we see on a extremely regular basis weekly at least I, I agree. We see a lot of central cord. We see a lot of anterior cord. And then in, within the neurosurgery community, there's a little bit of discrepancy as to how we classify central cord and anterior cord syndromes. Um, but yes, these are very common findings. As far as when we talk about central cord, I think of just the middle of the cord itself. Um, for the most part, sensory to motor deficits... Is that the way you classify it to start from a pre-hospital standpoint and say, hey, this might be a central cord patient? Central cord patient does have sort of a, a, a disjunction between sensory and motor findings. What you see often in these people is um, very abnormal sensation, especially in the shoulders and in the hands. They'll, they'll report something we call allodynia, right? So this burning pain whenever you touch them that is completely out of proportion to the stimulus. Uh, they can have a discrepancy between motor function in the arms and legs. So many central cord syndromes will present with more pronounced weakness in the upper versus the lower extremities. Um, but yeah, that's, those are some of the telltale signs that you might be dealing with one of those. Are there any specific cases that stand out to y'all about central cord syndrome that maybe take away as a pearl as far as management or different? So just from a mechanism and diagnosis standpoint, these are usually, these are usually what we call a hyperflexion injury. So the classic example is an older person who comes in after a fall and they either hit their head or hit their chin and extended their head um, and now they're complaining of burning in their shoulders and you might find some weakness on your exam at the upper extremities. I think it's very important to have a high index of suspicion for these because even after they get to the hospital a lot of the times they won't have any glaring findings on bony imaging, right? So if you have an elderly person that might have a herniated cervical disc they don't know about or a very spondylotic and degenerated spine, even if they fall from standing and hit their head wrong and their neck's manipulated in the wrong way, they can come in with this. So in that specific situation, the mechanism of injury, you can't shrug it off just because someone fell is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Fall from standing is a real is still a real thing, even Correct. though it doesn't look like much. Correct. Yeah. Um, or even just falling off the bed or falling off a chair, you know, leaned over a little bit too far and just... You know, Absolutely. Popped it right. 
Um, as far as Browns Accord, typically trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen that. That's the only place I've ever seen it, honestly. I've never seen it anywhere else. Usually penetrating trauma. Yep. I agree. It's usually penetrating sharp trauma. It's very rare to see Browns Accord syndrome with <clears throat> anything that includes blast injury, for example, ballistic injuries or blunt penetrating injury. Um, to be honest with you, I have never seen a textbook Browns Accord syndrome. Never. You see injuries that have features of it, but you know the ipsilateral, contralateral findings, like you read in the book, I've never actually seen that. I've only seen, we thought it was central cord one time, and it ended up being, well, this is a mixed picture of, and it was a knife stab wound. Yeah, I mean, yeah. straight to the back. Yeah. Just walked up behind him, kind of did the whole, uh, I'm going to fillet you like a fish thing. Mm. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it's, everything as far as upper extremities was wrong. They were, we intubated them very quickly, all those other things. But they ended up having these ipsilateral findings come to find out on their ICU. Yeah. Is there something that um, would clue you in more that these patients have a ipsilateral? I mean, ipsilateral is a fun term as far as like one side or the other, but that, hey, this may be a mixed picture and you may have to be looking for that subtle finding. I think think that's more valuable... In the hospital setting, for the pre-hospital assessment, I think your, your, your gross ABCD should be sufficient. Usually when we figure out that someone's got a brown support syndrome, it's af- after a very dedicated and detailed neurologic examination um, where we can go level by level. And we also have imaging findings at that point that you know, clue us into what this might be. You mentioned the difference between central cord and anterior cord. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about anterior cord real fast. Typically the anterior section the weird vibration per perception stuff. Can you can you guys elaborate a little so bit? So first on that? of all, most of the anterior cord that I've seen is not traumatic. It's so it's usually um, it's usually a vascular injury, vascular infarct to the and it's a often so I've seen it some in the ICU um, for example an infarct of the anterior spinal artery. The most recent one I've seen actually was uh, related to a aortic dissection interesting um, where they you you so um all we know is the what's called the artery of adamkovitz comes off of the aorta about uh t6-ish variable but yeah somewhere. yeah again yeah and if you if that gets dissected or this is very much an in-hospital thing but if someone has had what we call a t-var thoracic endovascular aortic repair and they have to cover that artery, um, they can get a, a spinal stroke. Um, and so the the anterior spinal artery uh, supplies the anterior two-thirds of the cord, but you're getting um, preservation of the dorsal columns, which is your vibration and proprioception senses. So you will have that preserved below the injury. So we see it in the context of trauma, not infrequently. And usually these are people that have an acute cervical disc herniation. So if the part of the cord that's being impinged is the front part of the cord selectively in a person that had an acute herniation. That is the person that can present with an anterior cord syndrome from a non-vascular injury. Um, and these are usually the people that we try to you know, decompress sooner rather than later um, if we can. Yeah. So it's important. Those are one of those. It's truly a time thing. You want to pay attention to, all right, this is my finding. We've got these symptoms for, say, they actually need an OR. So we fly a lot of 
C2, C1 fractures that are stable, that are fine. We're just, we're a lot smoother ride sometimes than some of the highways around town. We are totally fine with that. But it, the ones that are having symptomatic anterior cord symptoms, those are for a, it would be beneficial for us or anybody in pre-hospital to give you a heads up. Of course. And to, and to get to a center where you can do stuff like more advanced imaging, right? I'd like to, in these people, not just get bony imaging, but an MRI sooner rather than later to see if I'm dealing with a big compressive disc, right, that I can address. Uh, but what you said is spot on. A lot of the high cervical fractures, given the diameter of the canal up there being really large, are fractures that can present with no neurologic impairment at all. Um, and they can be stable and unstable. So that's kind of tricky, right? Because it's, it's fairly easy to suspect it in someone that's not moving their arms or their legs. Um, but instability in the context of someone that appears to have a normal examination is also something that's important to think about. Well, that brings me to our, our, our topic of spinal immobilization. Okay. So we've talked about a little bit, you know, hey, some of these patients were definitely going to keep spinally immobilized or in a collar or what have you. Talk a little bit about Nexus, where most pre-hospital, we were kind of talking briefly before this, most pre-hospital providers that have been around a little bit, we were, you board everyone. Thou shalt board them. They get everything, all the spider straps and pad the voids, all the things. We've slowly worked away from that with the Nexus criteria. Can you all elaborate a little bit more on that? So just for a little bit of historical context and context on me, I start I started my career in EMS. I got certified as an EMT in 1999, so I've been doing this for a little while. Um, and at that point, it was you backboard everyone. Um, you know, anyone who's been in a car accident, they get a C-collar, they get a backboard. We would do what we would call standing takedowns of someone who is um, of someone who is standing and ambulatory after an MVC. Um, I'm sure Will remembers that too. Yep. And fortunately, over the years, um, that has we've gone away from that. We don't have to immobilize, might immobilize every single patient who's been in an MVC. Um, and I think the most useful. So there are a couple of well-validated decision rules out there for um, for who does not need immobilization after after trauma. But that's the mo- I think the easier one to use um, is what we call uh, the Nexus criteria which is the Nexus National Emergency X-ray Utilization Study looked at who does and does not, what criteria can you use to ex- to determine who does not need immobilization after an injury. So one caveat with this, this was published in 1998, so this was before um, widespread use of CT for looking for injuries. But so the criteria used in Nexus are, are they... Normal level of alertness, GCS 15, not intoxicated, no distracting injuries, and then do they have any neurologic deficits on your exam? And if they have none of those, palpate their cervical spine. If they have no midline cervical spine tenderness, those patients can be, with 99% uh, sensitivity, be excluded um, that they do not have a clinically significant injury. I think that's very important to, to bring up. As someone who works in, in the neurosurgery side of things, we have the ability to see how well this works in preventing things like decubitus ulcers, right? People that get you know, put in a collar for no particular reason for a prolonged period of time. But unfortunately, we also get to see the people that Nexus sometimes misses. So the only thing that I would add to that is this is, for me, very personally, a common sense assessment, right? And that's what Nexus basically yeah. tells you to do, right? If you see someone that was involved in a very high 
um, energy trauma, right? Then you probably should err on the side of immobilizing until until you know things are cleared later, right? But yeah, in people that have these criteria, uh, you have someone that can perform a dedicated, detailed neurologic examination to make sure that nothing's going to be missed. Then that's reasonable. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a common sense for the pre-hospital side of things, at least a common sense eyeballing what I'm going to deal with here and determining how I'm going to immobilize until I get to the hospital. Um, early and effective immobilization definitely plays a role in, in preserving, you know, cord function and preventing secondary injury. So it has, it has its, its role. Um, but yes, I agree that not everyone needs to be backboarded and sandbagged and strapped <laughs> into the, you know. Skid, skid of the helicopter to yeah. prevent them from moving. You have a you have a normal healthy person who gets rear-ended yeah. and are up and walking around when you get to the scene, and they don't have any neck tenderness, and they're looking back and forth, left and right. Yeah, and they didn't tell you, yeah, like, oh, my arms went tingly or anything mm -hmm. funny that might clue yeah. you into something else going on. Sure. Yeah, a normal a normal healthy person is not going to be with a with a significant spinal injury is not going to be moving their neck. Correct. So pain that brings me to another very important thing that we sometimes miss: assessing for pain. Pain, in terms of how it plays into spinal stability and biomechanical stability, is very important because for us, that's an indirect indicator that something might be going on here. And looking for pain will be helpful in determining, oh, okay, so this is probably something that needs to be mobilized versus not, right? Yeah. And that even in pain, personally, I've seen a lot of people, oh, they're, they're not hurting. Well, do you feel any discomfort? It's all in how you word the question of sometimes. Course. Because some people are, their perception of pain, you know, the older diabetic patients, because we have zero mm -hmm. of those in Mississippi. Right, right. That right. have, you know, don't have the nerve endings or whatever. I, I my neck just feels funny. Uh -huh. or, or, going back to the incomplete spinal cord injury, not even necessarily pain, but my fingers are tingling. Yeah, they feel funny. Like, yeah. like yeah. ants crawling on my skin. I've, I've heard it worded a, a bunch of different times. Um, just like chest pain, elephant on my chest yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. No, not, never. Um, if you will, I'm going to say, if you will, a lot, <laughs> if you will, something else I wanted to bring up was positioning patients. As far as preserving, we've talked about making sure the cord is perfused well. So you, we're talking about blood pressure and everything else, but making sure they come in. If you do spinal immobilize somebody, whether it's sitting their head up a little bit, poking the board up a little bit, making sure their head stays midline, their collar's not all the way upside their head. That's important for us. You know, just make sure that their head is in a neutral position with, ideally a, a good collar. We see all sorts of different collars from all sorts of different pre-hospital providers that provide, you know, lesser or more degree of immobilization. Um, but yeah, just, just make sure that the neck is midline and still. And in terms of the rest of the spine, I wouldn't go bending the patient a ton, um, but maybe a little bit of, you know, head up and bird or stuff yeah. like that, you know? Uh, get some of the weight. If they're a CHF patient, they can sit up just a little bit. Don't make their life 10 times harder. Yeah, I wouldn't break the bed to 30 degrees. Yeah. But if they're not being able to breathe, then that goes back into ABCs, right? So you do what you got to do to preserve your algorithm and go through your airway, breathing, and circulation. So ultimately, if you do need to sit someone up because they can't breathe, right? Yeah. Or if you need to manipulate their cervical spine to intubate them because they can't breathe, then ideally, if you're suspecting an injury, you can do it maintaining some semblance of spinal precautions, but ultimately... You have to do what you got to do, right? Oh, yeah. Sometimes in the hospital, we have to make a risk-benefit judgment. For example, yes. a lot of these spinal injury patients are going to be traumatic brain injury patients, where sitting, the, getting their head elevated can make a huge difference in yes. terms of their intracranial pressure. 
I absolutely agree. That, so, and also, that's where a, a well-fitting cervical collar comes into place, not constrict, not impeding venous outflow. One of the things that has proven helpful for me in determining if I can sit someone up quickly is the initial trauma assessment nowadays includes very high-quality bony imaging, right? So if I have a patient that's critically ill that has a concomitant traumatic brain injury and I need to go down the TBI management guideline, I can just take a look at that CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, take a look at the bony anatomy, and come up with a risk-benefit assessment for sitting them up, right? If I don't see anything grossly unstable in that, in that imaging, then probably this patient would benefit from being sat up, right? Now, the neck is a little different. I'd probably keep them in a collar until we can prove in, yeah, in all the things, some yeah. other way, shape, or form that they're stable or not. Uh, but yes, I think we have the tools nowadays to, to make a fairly good determination. We've talked about a little bit, but I wanted to bring up dermatones. It's something that a lot of people forget about mm-hmm. and don't. Uh, utilize only in their assessment, but like they're like, oh, that was a fun chart I had to look at. It had colors in it in school. Mm. I don't want to look at it again. Um, I know I had to take a test, memorize all of it. You, you, I use them every day now. I wish I'd have paid more attention in school, honestly. How effective are they for y'all, and are there certain ones that you pay more attention to than others? Um, just from a ED standpoint, you know, you can make a gross determination of where it's going to be, where your injury is going to be. Um, I definitely don't go into as much of a detailed assessment as our neurosurgeons will be. Um, But for example, cervical cord injury, um, I've had a number of patients where you can like look from the door and tell that they have a cervical cord injury. So C8 is the is the innervation to for the motor function of the triceps or to the extension of the arm um and i've had multiple patients where i've walked by the room and i'm like they have a cord injury they're standing there with they're lying there with their arms flexed mm-hmm. um because they still have preserved flexion of the upper extremity they still have preserved biceps but they can't extend that's going to be a pretty common um presentation of a Again, going back to a cervical cord, a uh, uh, central cord syndrome. Yeah, you definitely see that. And um, they usually have some semblance, depending on where the injury occurred, some semblance of preserved sort of upper extremity, uh, upper part of the upper extremity function. Uh, but triceps um, activation will be Dave, impeded. Will be impeded, correct. And we have a myriad of terms that we use to describe this, none of which I will uh, present today. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, other thing I wanted to bring up, just because I got to say it, even though they're, they may present almost looks to corticate, it's not seizures. Mm-hmm. I've okay. seen that a couple of times where people are like, I mean, they could be seizing too underneath it. There's, if they're common, common thing, but. Oh, for sure. We've seen a bunch of weird combinations. Like you can definitely have ticks and fleas, right? You yep. can have a cervical cord injury and have a seizure disorder, right? And uh, teasing that one apart from the other is, is challenging, but yeah. Doesn't mean they need 20 milligrams of Versed IV push. Yes. Just say that, say that front. Exactly. Um, T4 is usually a big one for me as well, for as far as nipple line. That's a fun yeah, one. Those are, those are a couple of the big, um, of the big landmarks that uh, I think pre-hospital people get taught as well. So T4 uh, at the nipple line. Um, yeah, so your T4 dermatome corresponds to your nipple line, and then T10 uh, corresponds to the umbilicus. Yeah, so those are important. And then... I would say probably C5, if you're looking for stuff that might, you know, put someone in trouble in terms of respiratory failure, um, you can ask a patient to chicken wing and you can test deltoid strength. So that's a good sort of C5. Biceps also has a little bit of C5 innervation, but it's mostly C6. Triceps will be seven. Eight for wrist extension. Um, 
so there are a few things that you can use, and you don't have to memorize every single dermatome. Um, like, unfortunately, we do. We have to, <laughs> whenever we get called to the bedside, we have to, you know, know exactly where the injury is, what the sensory modalities are, um, and that takes time, right? Oh, yeah. Which is a luxury that sometimes we have in the hospital, but y'all don't have in the field. Trying to do that three-minute, you know, while the aircraft's mm. cranked and ready to go. Yeah. What are you, you going to make them do? Um, yeah, exactly. Do, do do play the puppet game almost. Yeah. Uh, so the, the down and dirty, I wrote it here, the down and dirty version I do is the okay sign with all their fingers, and then can they pull them apart? Mm. kind of tells you everything you want to know as far as up high. And then light touch across the pinky and thumb. So kind of gives you some of that. Both sides of the hand. That's a yeah. good idea to do, you know, for a um, quick assessment. Can they, the temperature stuff, as far as, it's it's so subjective. One, because we live in Mississippi and it's always hot, so I don't really, you know. Whatever. Temperature perception is something that I would reserve for sort of an in-house, very detailed exam. I don't I don't really see how you could, I'm just imagining a scene, right, where you got the chopper firing up and a bunch of people yelling and chaos to be able to come up with an accurate temperature you know, sensory exam. Right. Probably not that helpful in the in the pre-hospital setting. The Papa, which I kind of like the chicken wing version better. Yeah. That's, that's a little, I, might, I might steal that one. Um, and people will globally understand that. Yeah. You know, hey, chicken make, wing up and they'll they'll get it. If they have a GCS of like better than 10, <laughs> they'll probably do that for you. Probably good to go. And then sharp or dull. Again, that can be challenging in pre-hospital environment, even sometimes in the ER, like trying to find, because you don't want to poke them with a scalpel. That's kind of that's, yeah, not that's nice. Not. Um, but using, you know, a pen, well, is it sharp or dull, or what, how do they feel at any or normal day? That's that's also usually reserved for a, for an in-house assessment. I think just, you know, touch sensation uh, and a motor exam will give you sufficient information to be able to relay to folks in the hospital once you drop the patient off. Yeah. Um, let's get down, let's get down to management. So we talked about preventing secondary injury, hypoxia, hypotension are the two biggest ones on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about airway management a little bit. It's better to preemptively get it or at least facilitate some kind of preventing hypoxia mm-hmm. more than anything else. Uh, hypotension, it's a problem. Uh, we'll see it a lot. It's definitely a problem. <laughs> Especially in the context of the polytrauma patient, right? Mm-hmm. Because then it might get tricky in determining before you get into the hospital what's actually causing this and how do I best treat it. So I'll, I'll like, yeah, kind of like, defer to Joe. Like I always, like I always talk about in ATLS, um, in the polytrauma patient, causes one, two, and three of hypotension are bleeding. Mm-hmm. Presume they're bleeding until you prove that they're not. Um, so if some one of these patients comes in after an MVC and they're hypotension, uh, they're hypotensive. I'm giving them blood to start off. Then once we've kind of done our assessments in the in the ED to make sure they're not having massive hemorrhage, you know, they're not bleeding out somewhere externally, their FAST exam's negative, their chest and pelvic x-rays don't show a large source of hemorrhage. Um, that's the point at which I'm, talk, I'm thinking more neurogenic shock. You can actually, so, and we still teach this in ATLS, something you can do potentially in the trauma bay in one of your, or without moving the patient is we will still teach a lateral C-spine x-ray. So sometimes you will see a, um, a cervical dislocation. Um, not, it's not, doesn't rule out, but it can rule in. I think if you have the x-ray machine there while you're, you know, shooting your chest x-ray and your, and your, your primary survey, it's, it's not a bad idea. And we need to keep in mind that most of these people, once they have some semblance of stability, will end up going fairly quickly for, you know, a PAN scan, a PAN CT scan, right? 
Uh, but yeah, I think that would be helpful in guiding your initial management for sure. It never, it's one of those things, it's not going to hurt. X-ray now is so easy, honestly, compared to what it used to be. Like yeah. even when I first started, it, it never hurts if you got an option. If you want, like you said, we want to rule something in, yeah. cool, shoot it real fast. I would definitely emphasize that. I think it's um, not sensitive at all, but very specific mm-hmm. yeah. if you do see something, yeah. right? Yes. You're not excluding an injury, Correct. but yeah. If you're C3, C4 is just completely yeah. dislocated. If you yeah. think that, yeah, if you see that things are not, you know, if you see a slinky head type problem, then you, you know. It's a problem. Yeah. 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 Problem. As far as, all right, so we talked about blood. You think it's polytrauma. Great. We've kind of ruled out the blood. Let's talk about volume, additional volume, and presser use. So, again, some changes here in leashing literature. So, once again, they get a couple units of blood starting off. Um, I will move fairly quickly to uh, pressers in these patients. Um, neurogenic shock. So, it's loss of your sympathetic tone. So, your sympathetic fibers come off of your upper T-spine. Um, usually down to T6, theoretically can get some neurogenic chalk down to about T12, but usually it's high, it's usually it's cervical or high thoracic uh, spine. But you still have your parasympathetic, so your vasodilatory um, input coming in from your cranial nerves, mainly from your vagus nerve. So these patients are vasodilated, so I want to give them a vasoconstrictor. So that's a good point. From the neurosurgery standpoint, the literature in managing Acute spinal cord injury has really not shifted much over the first over the last five years, I would say. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned when we were talking before we started recording, a lot of the guidelines that neurosurgeons use are expert consensus. It is very difficult to come up with prospective randomized control trials for the pathology that we treat. Um, so the CNS and the AANS, who are sort of the governing bodies of organized neurosurgery, have come up with guidelines to standardize what we do, right? So come up with a standard of care. What these guidelines will tell us is if you have an acute spinal cord injury, you should increase the mean arterial pressure to above 85 millimeters of mercury for one week. Now, that is a thing that in my opinion, should not be treated as gospel, right? Because, again, you're treating with people that have multiple other problems. You cannot see this in isolation. So pressing an elderly person with an ejection fraction of 20 to a map of 85 will probably hurt them more than help them. I think that going back to the pre-hospital interventions, A, B, and C, the global tenet in my mind should be avoid hypotension. I don't think you should be trying to press someone for a target of 85 in the chopper, right? This is something that you should probably start thinking about doing after you've had a proper assessment of the patient and their comorbidities in the hospital. Uh, But avoiding hypotension is a good thing. Mm -hmm. If you want to do it with volume, that works, right? If you have a clear source of hemorrhage, obviously replace that. If you want to use pressors, then that brings us to the next important question in this, right, Will? Yeah. Um, which way you want to go? <laughs> there's many ways to go here, and um, I don't think there's an absolutely right way. Historically, that, we've used three drugs. Yeah. At least neurosurgeons have played around with three drugs to, to manage this. Uh, dopamine, phenylephrine, and norepinephrine, right? So these are the drugs. And I would say historically, dopamine and phenylephrine have been the ones that have been most used. I don't like dopamine, and I think the literature has moved away from dopamine pretty significantly and conclusively. It's a, it's a dirty drug. It's got a dose-dependent effect, Right hard to manage, and has a non-trivial side effect profile. Now, between phenylephrine and norepinephrine, so this is an interesting discussion, right? 
I was reading a meta-analysis of the literature regarding many aspects of acute spinal cord injury care, including MAP goals and what presser to use. You really can't come up with class one evidence to decide what to do, right? There's no perfect patient that lines it out every time. No. The recommendation that they came up with was if you have a cervical or high thoracic injury, you should consider using norepinephrine just because of the loss of sympathetic outflow, right? So if you are in a vasoplegic state because loss of catecholamines, then maybe using a catecholamine agonist would be a good idea. Um, that also has positive inotrope and chronotrope effects, right? Yep. So that might even help you deal with other, you know, aspects of trauma and hyperperfusion. And the bradycardia that's associated with it. That's a lot of it. Correct. Using sort of a pure vasotonic agent like phenylephrine, um, I, I can't tell you right now, here and now, that it's wrong. I really can't because I don't have evidence to point towards towards that. But in my mind, it makes more sense to use a drug like norepinephrine um, early on for a lot of these injuries, and more specifically, cervical or high thoracic injuries for sure. When you get to the lower thoracic spine, um, then it's, it's, it's murkier. And obviously there's no place that you can look for a 100% firm recommendation on this. Just from a simplicity standpoint, I always tell my emergency medicine residents, norepinephrine is very rarely the wrong choice. I, I there agree are, with that statement. There are even, even just, even outside of this topic, just across yeah. the board, norepinephrine is rarely the wrong choice. There may be occasional patients where there is a better choice, but... I hesitate to think of outside of a few uh, cardiac indications um, where norepinephrine could potentially be harmful. I agree. Um, and just from a physiologic standpoint in these patients, especially high thoracic or cervical cord injury, norepinephrine makes more physiologic sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. They're yeah. going to have increased vagal tone. They're going to be at risk for bradycardia. Um, and the main side effect of phenylephrine is reflux bradycardia. I think a lot of it with phenylephrine, both I've seen in my personal practice and talking to people and then watching stuff in the ER, phenylephrine can be really hard to titrate in. Mm -hmm. it's, if you, it's one of those I won't say I won't do without an art line, but it's very hard to do it without an art line because some people, especially some of the patients we deal with, are so sensitive to it. And that reflex, you overshoot just a little bit, and they get that reflex bradycardia, and now we really have a hypoperfusion state, and we have a real problem. I've even seen one or two patients with um, with high cerv with cervical injuries who get reflex bradycardia to norepinephrine. I've occasionally had patients that I've had to go to epinephrine because of their uh, because of their reflex bradycardia. They needed more of the chronotropy from epinephrine. And it's all these are very challenging. Uh, I think I, I don't want to speak for all of us, but art lines play a crucial role here, and especially in these injuries, as far as managing your blood pressure, making sure your map's okay, and then you're playing with pressors anyway. A lot of these are really tight and tenuous patients. It may be three mics. It may be 23 mics. Mm -hmm. It's But they, they want the certain dose, and that's the one they want. Yeah, I, I would say, at least for us, and I, I can't speak for the emergency providers, it's very useful to have invasive blood pressure management, uh, at least to know what's going on, right? And, and to sort of guide resuscitation as well to a certain degree. Yeah, I agree. It is, it's extremely helpful. Um, it's also, but we also have to be aware it's not globally available. Many of our smaller ERs, um, most of our pre-hospital providers will not have access to that. So yes, it is helpful. And as an intensivist, I love, I love an A-line, but it's not, I, we have to recognize it's not globally available.
as far as glucose, just wanted to bring it up. A lot of people kind of overskip that vital sign for lack of better terminology, especially in cord injuries. It, with Mississippi and our level of diabetics, mm. is that something you run into as far as a challenge both in the ER and in the ICU? I mean, both of y'all as far as managing these patients? It is. I mean, hyperglyce- hyperglycemia inhibits wound healing. It inhibits... it. We keep patients fairly strictly controlled in the ICU. Um, glucose less than 180. Um, but you also want to avoid hypoglycemia. So... Yes, it's important. Um, it's not necessarily something I would be addressing in the pre-hospital environment, though. I, I agree with that. I think the, the critical care literature is pretty definitive in, in, in how you should manage. You know, you shouldn't be overly aggressive and dropping it too much. We know that hurts people, right? Uh, for us as surgeons, it's an important factor to consider more when we're going to defer surgery in an emergent setting, right? If we're not going to be operating on someone right this minute, well, if I am, I really, you know, don't yeah, yeah, don't care what their yeah. glucose is, right? But if I have the luxury of time, that's going to be helpful. If I'm going to be stabilizing someone's spine posteriorly, for example, these are wounds that have a high risk of breaking down. And if you are poorly controlled, that's going to play a big role. So, yeah, it's definitely something that we think about. Um, but we think about it differently in the emergent and sort of semi-emergent and elective setting. Another thing I wanted to bring up was platelet counts. I remember, I don't know if you remember this, I asked you one night about 3 a.m., I don't know if it was 3 a.m. conversations, hey, so, Probably. yeah, what, what for you as a neurosurgeon, now this is going ahead too, but if you've got somebody with a cord injury or something that's impacting the cord, platelet counts and going to the OR, what, well, you don't have to give you the, What's your thoughts? So I think it's a critical determination of, you know, finding out whether or not first you have the platelets and second, if the platelets are actually working, right? It's, it's a different thing. I would say in terms of spine injury and spinal cord injury, it is very rare that we go in the middle of the night with, with a case. It, it does happen on occasion, but it's pretty rare. So it gives us the luxury of time. I would say a blanket statement for neurosurgical procedures is very hard. It's different, you know, opening a head than dealing with a spine. But I would like a platelet count, a functioning platelet count of as close to 100,000 as I can get to try to minimize complications such as, you know, post-operative hemorrhage, epidural hematoma, things of, of, of that nature. Um, but yeah, very different. If I have to place an EVD in a patient, platelets are crucial there, crucial, because hemostasis within the parenchyma is highly dependent on platelet count. Um, but I think 100,000 working platelets is a good benchmark. That would be my, my, my best statement for, for this purpose. I know it's super platelets we pay attention to all the time in trauma for poly stuff. But we do. It's, it's one of those things a lot of times people, when they get the CBC back, they just kind of throw it out of the window. Oh, I don't really care. I care about the H&H and that and the other. Thinking downstream definitively, knowing the platelet count where it started, and then, you know, you, you're transferring somebody from a small hospital to here. Where was it, you know, two hours ago? Where is it now? And then are they working, obviously? But is it trending down? Is it trending up? Or which way are we going? And I think you hit on something important there, which is coagulopathy in the setting of polytrauma, right? So this is something that us as neurosurgeons need to keep in mind. Um, something that if you're not careful in interpreting your values in the context of the patient can really bite you. Um, and that's the same for critical mm-hmm. and emergency medicine, Right. Um, knowing that there might be early signs of coagulopathy in people that are polytrauma patients is very important to know. So it's not just the platelets. It's 
you know, using things like a tag if you have access to that, right? Interpreting your COAC values and knowing what they mean and what they don't mean is also very important. Knowing whether a patient's on antiplatelet agent. Exactly. Got DDAVP last month. I don't yeah. know if you know that or not. Uh, I did not. They gave it yesterday. Okay. Um, so having DDAVP on the aircraft for us has been a game changer as far as all these patients that are on Plavix and aspirin and everything else. I think it's a good drug to have, right? Uh, even replacing platelets in someone that has an irreversible platelet inhibitor circulating in their system is, you know, physiologically not, not the wisest way to go about it. Sometimes we do what we have to do to try to get counts up and increase safety as much as we can. But yeah, having something that will activate the few platelets that are amenable to get activated out there is important. DDAVP is a great drug for that. And I, I'm glad that Dr. Duran mentioned TAG because um, I think we're starting to use that more and more. Um, there are even a couple of pre-hospital um, uh, pre system using that to are our platelets functioning as well as they can be? Is mm -hmm. there thing, are there things we can do? There are other tag uh, systems out there, like platelet mapping tag tells you how much inhibition you have, for example, from your inhibitors. And are, there's some there's some literature out there, not so much in the spinal cord injury, but actually in the ICH uh, literature, using tag to determine when you need to be giving platelets. It's a really cool tool. I think the barrier is access. Not every place yep. has access to tag, and also knowing how to interpret a tag. Yeah. Yep. You brought up something you talk about hematomas, spinal hematomas, mm -hmm. because those happen pretty frequently with trauma, even in some of the smaller uh, mechanisms, and we've seen them. It's it's easy to find a drop of blood here and there in folks. I would say compressive epidural hematomas that we've had to evacuate emergently are fairly rare, a fairly rare occurrence. Um, I would say we run into compressive lesions because of fractured dislocations or an acutely herniated disc far more often than a compressive epidural hematoma, but it is something that you definitely need to consider um, in your differential. So that plays into dealing with coagulopathy, knowing if someone's platelet inhibited, being able to get advanced imaging fairly quickly. So yeah, you'll see it on MRI reports often, but most of the time it's not a compressive epidural hematoma that you need to take to the operating room emergently. I think it's... I Dan was saying it's difficult to pick up on our usual imaging in the ED. Yes. Um, occasionally you'll see it on a CT, but most of the time it requires MRI to diagnose. Definitely. I know there's a couple of flights I've brought in over the years that, you know, we thought it was some herniated disc, whatever, we're getting pre-hospital, and then they get an MRI, and it's like, oh, it's an epidural hematoma. Mm. As far as management, it's almost identical. You treat a, treat a symptom as, as you know for the pre-hospital setting, for sure. For us, then the sort of the litmus test is the decision-making there, right? So how long has this person been out? What do we think their chances of recovery are? What are the risks of intervening, right? What's the etiology of this hematoma? So those are all things that we need to consider carefully before we put someone through a procedure that might be more harmful than helpful. But yes, these are things that are always in the back of our mind. Can I decompress something quickly and improve function? Should always be there in your mind. What's the definitive outcome going to look like? Is this more helpful, more beneficial, risk-benefit, all those things? Exactly. Anything else you want to hit on the spinal cord? A couple of other things that might be improving our approach to this is there have been, to my knowledge, two randomized controlled prospective trials trying to figure out. They're mainly geared at non-inferiority of a map of 65 versus 85, right, in management of acute spinal cord injury. One of them actually was terminated in 2019. I could not find any good reason for why the study was terminated. The second study is currently 
ongoing and recruiting. So hopefully within the next few years, we might have answers as to what is a good map goal that we should be chasing. Is it still 85 like we you know considered in the neurosurgical literature? Could it be less? Could we potentially save some of our patients' complications of using pressors for a prolonged period of time? All of these things. Um, so I'm eager to see what will come of that. Yeah, I agree. I think that good randomized controlled trials are important for that question. In both the neurosurgery and the trauma literature, there are a number of retrospective trials that there's, you know, keeping a map of 85 versus a map of 65 is associated with better outcomes. But kind of the question in my mind is, you know, that's a guideline recommended. Correct. Uh, that's guideline recommended at this point. So in a retrospective trial, that just raises the point of, are the patients who have a map of 85 also the ones who the physician is better at following the guidelines? Correct. Um, just globally. So I think... And to be perfectly transparent about that, where these numbers come from in the neurosurgical literature is in in the 90s. This is 90s-based literature. What the CNS and AANS have done is to try to standardize practice, right? Um, why it's 85? I don't have a great reason for that, right? Why it's not 80 or 95? I don't think there's any real class one evidence out there that can that can answer that question, which is why this is so important. Ethically, that becomes a problem as well, because once you have a governing body saying that this is the standard of care, right? designing a study that is a non-inferiority study, assigning patients to an arm of less than 85 can be very tricky, but it can be done, and it's being done right now, and I think it's, it's going to be very valuable information. Something else I want to bring up, again, we're talking about guidelines, right? So it's not, this is not written in stone, this is no. not a thou shalt thing or whatever. Some of these patients that we deal with, they are, as coming from a trauma head side, but they don't do well at a map of 85. No. That is hypotension mm-hmm. for them all day long. So <clears throat> some of those patients, the map of 85, yeah, that's maybe where a target, but we may go a lot higher than that because yeah. that's their normal. Sure, and then, then you get into our specific patient population, right? Many times, I don't even have to put a patient in the ICU to chase a map of 85 because that's where they live, or higher, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't think we should be aggressively dropping blood pressure to target the 85 number. That's, that's I think, you know, not appropriate. It's a good point to bring up. Uh, and that's what I, want, I wanted to say was don't necessarily drop it either. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's more about getting it up so make yeah. sure there is perfusion. Correct. You don't need then to... bringing it down. I, I agree. Yeah, I don't back it off. Now, obviously, this has caveats, right? I am a person that has a very low threshold to sort of discontinue the map of 85 dogma if if there's a doubt that the patient's getting hurt from it, right? If there's no doubt, then by all means, and I'll do it every day. But if a patient has, you know, the chance of an acute hemorrhagic complication, they just got X-lapped and there's a tenuous closure of something, right? Maybe that's the patient you shouldn't be pushing, right? Right. ABC's trumped the D. Unfortunately. (laughs) Even though, what is it, A stands for neurosurgeon? For A neurosurgeon. A neurosurgeon. Yes, sorry. (laughs) I wanted to make sure I got that right. (laughs) All right. I think that's pretty much all I got unless you guys... Anything else you want to hit on the spinal cord? No, not at all. Well, guys, I appreciate your time. Thanks for today. This was awesome. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Will. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.